Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 53, Developing for Mobile, the Web, and Desktop with Russell Keith McGee. My name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Perez, and I'm a teacher who codes. <laughs> and we've got Russell with us who does a little bit of everything. He's a speaker, he's a developer, he's the founder of the Beware Project, and we're really excited to talk with him this week about how we can help our students learn more about developing for other platforms than just the terminal or the Colab window. Welcome, Russell. How are you this morning? I, I am very well, although it's evening for me, time zones being what they are. Thank you very much for having me. Before we begin and get into that topic, we're going to start in the same place we always do, which is with the win of the week. And as is our custom, we like to make our guest go first. So Russell, you're up first. What's your win of the week? So I have an interesting pair that are actually beware related and the fail of the week then leads into the win of the week. So about a week ago, it was been Sunday last week, one of the collaborators on the Toga project is using Toga in an application at a university in Tel Aviv. And he has done a bunch of work recently and said, hey, can you just cut a, cut a new release so that we can, we can start using the actual packaged release or use, the, use these new features in that release? And so I cut the release and it all, all went well and you know, everything got uploaded and whatnot. And then over the next couple of days, we just started getting these really weird bug reports from people saying, this just isn't working on, on Linux. Why is this? Is this error normal? Is it because of the Linux version? And after you see, like one, you write that off as maybe someone's doing something wrong. When you see three people in the space of a day all say the same thing as, oh, what did I do? What have I done? <laughs> and it turned out that, yes, I had completely failed to package one file. And as a result, a whole subdirectory just didn't exist in the package. So there's my fail. So the, the turnaround is that related to that is that in the process of, of discovering, oh, crap, all this is going on, we discovered that the Windows version of Toga was leaking memory quite badly. And again, this uh, gentleman from Tel Aviv, who's uh, Asagi, who's been working on, on this for, uh, for a while, I, I had a vague idea where the problem was, pointed him vaguely in the direction, and four hours later he came back with a patch saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure this has got it, and you know, test it and ran it, and, and we were good to go. By Wednesday we had a patch out, and the, it was, no one was any the wiser. Nothing to see here, this is not the bug you're looking for, everything's fine now. That's wonderful. That's a great, great journey, right? That's what we are always shooting for. Like we find one thing that maybe seems awful at the time. Oh, I can't believe I made that mistake. And you can solve that and maybe a little bit more too. Yeah. And if nothing else, it's the living proof. Yes. Okay. I've got a PhD in computing and I've been doing this for 20 years. And yes, sometimes I do put my <laughs> legs both into the same leg of the pants and completely screw things up. So it's, it's always satisfying to hear for us newbies that people still make huge mistakes and, mm -hmm. and survive. The real trick is really just realizing the size and scope of the ways you will screw up. <laughs> but to realize that you can dig yourself out of that hole you know, there are ways to avoid you know, never making the same mistake twice or trying to avoid to make the same mistake twice and setting up the processes to make sure those things don't happen again. But you're always going to make mistakes. This is just the nature of the, this thing called computing and programming. So Yeah, and that's good. That's one of our skills. We always uh, try to teach the kids like, yeah, you're going to make mistakes, but you will survive and you just have to have faith that you're going to be able to fix those mistakes somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and more often than not, particularly with modern computers, it's very hard to break things so badly that anything actually is done wrong. Like you'll break your program, you might 
cause some little headaches here and there. You might be difficult to recover from, but you, you can basically can always recover. It's just a question of how much backtracking you need to do to get there. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that actually leads into my one of the week. So I had, I mean, I had a lot of fun this week. There were a lot of cool things that I got working and, and was excited about, but by far the best moment this week was working with a student who came to me. We've been talking, this is my first week with new students. So each, every nine weeks, we have a new set of students who come in and they are either learning Python for the first time, or it's been a year since they've been doing any sort of coding. So we're working with them on review and getting them back into the rhythm of coding and, and figuring things out. And so we spend a lot of time in this first week talking about error messages and getting them really comfortable with it. And not just knowing that these are the error messages, but what do you do next? Like I got this error, error message, now what? And I keep reminding them like, look, this is not NASA, right? It's not, we're not launching a, a rocket. It's not SpaceX. We don't have to worry so much about making mistakes. What we do have to worry about is how do we go about fixing them? And so, we spend a lot of time with this during the week and kids are getting the hang of it. If you have a name error, 90% of the time, it means you've got a typo or something. And I always explain to them, look, I've been coding for a very long time and doing this. I said, I make mistakes all the time. The goal is not to eliminate mistakes or never have them. It's to know what to do when you see them. And so I had this student schedule extra help with me. She wanted extra help time. Now, 99 times out of 100, whenever a student comes to me and says, I want extra help, it's because they say, I want help with this program, or I'm getting this error and I'm stuck. And they're very specific and focused on the very next obstacle in front of them. This student came to me and said, I want extra help because I want to learn how to handle my errors better. I'm not getting it. And I really want to know what to do when I get these errors so that I don't have to keep coming and asking you for extra help. And I told her, I said, look, I can't believe you've asked me for that because most students just want to help get help fixing the next thing and, and getting this out of their way. I said, you're trying to learn the general solution, right? You're trying to figure out what's the broader solution here. I th said, I know that this is really hard for you right now. And you're trying to figure out where the quotation marks go and which side of the assignment operator go is where the variable should be. I said, but the fact that you're asking me this question suggests to me that you have a very bright future as not just a programmer, but as a problem solver in general and someone who can really think about what more needs to happen. So it was really exciting to see. I, it's probably maybe the second time since I started teaching where I've had a student take that perspective when asking for help, and it was really cool. Yeah, no, those sort of stories are, though. So much of programming is not about this problem, this error, this specific instance. It's about finding the patterns and finding how is this thing like all the other things so that I can build the abstraction that can do all those things and a bunch of other things that I haven't thought about. So you know, that find, have, when you have that moment where, where someone genuinely seems to get that there is an abstraction here they need to understand or a higher, a higher concept they need to understand, I, yeah, I've had those moments and they are, they are a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I said to her, just give me three or four weeks. I said, right now, everything is a struggle because it feels like everything is getting in your way. But I said, but give me three or four weeks of consistent effort, trying to learn it, figure it out, see that bigger picture. And I said, and you're going to start to be self-sufficient. You'll be able to start coding things yourself and figuring things out. It'll start to click. And then you're going to ha really have some fun. Cool. Well, I'm going to follow suit with Russell and the way he did the fail and the win together because that just seemed to flow really well. And mine, mine this week is a combined thing as well. After talking to Allie last week, 
I got motivated to go into Django, not the Django, thank you, I'm sorry. <laughs> Django, so I can say it properly, tutorial, and with the Django girls, and I really wanted to do that this week, and I had, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna go in, and she really motivated me, I started it, and I took Django girls tutorial on Terminal, and which is, Fabulous. She is probably one of the best teachers of Terminal I have seen. She explained it in a non-coding way, and it was a great, a couple, two different metaphors. So if you haven't checked out her tutorial, and I don't know her name, I'll have to look that up. Really good. But I got to literally into the Django installation, and I, I hit a wall, lack of time, etc. So then I jumped to Beware. <laughs> So <laughs> Django was my fail so far. I did not do what I wanted to do, but I got into Beware and I was hacking at that for a couple days. And this morning, finally, I don't know what was going on with Terminal and we'll talk about this later and my issues with Terminal, but I finally got, after deleting 20 million Hello Worlds and Beware tutorial fo folders in my finder window, I finally got my app.py up and running and starting to look through what, you know, and understanding the the HTML-like features of Beware. So I, as a huge win this morning, I tweeted about that. It was seven o'clock in the morning and I got the little B on my dock and it was just like, yay, <laughs> I got it. So it, it was a hard win, but I did it. So thank you, that's mine. <laughs> Well, I guess I'm last but on the fails list. So, so my fail this week was really just trying to explain to students how the expectations work in the class. And this is something that's a little bit different than a lot of the other classes that they have. If they're in an English class, a lot of their work is based on how much did you write? How much did you turn in? How do your ideas connect? And that's true also in computer science in a different way. But I feel like I'm still struggling to set the right expectations at the beginning of the, the new class to be able to say, here's what I expect you to do. I'm not expecting you to do everything on time because I know that it's going to take you longer, but I do expect you to put in consistent effort, right? So it's not the, did it take you an extra day or two? It's, did you spend four days doing nothing and then try to scramble at the last minute that we're trying to solve for? So I know that I'm explaining it and I know I'm making a little bit of progress and making it better each time I explain it, but it's still not getting through. It's still not there yet. And I don't know if it's the way I'm explaining it, if it's the age and, and circumstances of the children that we're teaching, or if it's something totally different that I just haven't seen yet. But that's my fail that I'm still working on is how do I get students to really get how this class is supposed to work and how they're supposed to think about it. So I'll keep working on it. It's not something I have a solution for yet, but this is that area where, you know, when you talk about coding is easy, people are hard, right? This is the hard thing with people. Uh, there's no there's no patch I can release for this. It's just constant iteration and trying to find a new way to do it. But it's funny, it's like we've gone through this shift. So all my wins and my fails earlier in our show, about 50 of them ago, I was all about stuff about teaching and everything. And now look, we've made this epiphany kind of switch in our conversations. I'm like, yeah, coding. <laughs> and Sean's, huh, I haven't reached that one child yet. <laughs> He's definitely a teacher now. 
<laughs> oh, Russell, you'll have to uh, bear with us. Sorry, we have these moments. <laughs> no, it's it's quite right. My my wife is a teacher, and my mother and mother-in-law are both teachers. So I'm. Oh, you get it. Being surrounded by education, I know what this is like. Excellent. Well, let's get into this, Sean. I'm yeah, excited so- to talk about it. For me too. So I, I think one of the things just to set the context for this and why we're excited to speak with you, Russell, is that we were at the, I guess the last PyCon US that was live, where you spoke about how Python should be in more places. It has some domains where we're very well established, where things work really well, and there's a very robust and mature set of tools and, and capabilities. But there are other areas that we really don't have a lock on yet. It's really not there yet. And What's interesting to us as teachers is that those areas that are emerging or still new for Python are some of the areas that our students are most interested in, especially in middle school and upper school, our high school students. So for example, I can talk to our students about web because they've used websites and things like that, but they are more familiar with the front end of it. Or I can talk to them a little bit about data and how to use it, but going into the data science stack of Python with 11 and 12 year old kids might be a little bit hard to navigate. Yeah, or feel a little bit too much like math class. And they right, kind of right. And some kids love that, right? Oh, more yeah, math. Oh, yeah. Other kids are yeah. Other kids are like, no, 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 please, anything but that. But what we find is that the areas where they're most interested and they're most engaged are the things where they can touch it, they can see it, they can play with it. And for most of our students, that tends to be on their phone or on their laptop, yes. not necessarily in a terminal window or in a Jupyter notebook. So the Beware project that you founded starts to address some of those things. And we're very curious about how it works, how it fits together. And we are essentially newbies at this. We started looking at this just a few weeks ago as we started to gear up for the podcast. And I know that there are a lot of teachers who are probably also thinking about where do we go with this? How do I make my examples more relevant? And what we wanted to talk to you about today is how could we potentially use Beware to bring those more relevant examples to our students of how to use coding and Python specifically to create and implement the ideas that they have. Sure. So yeah, I mean, like Beware is an interesting case because there's a couple of convergent, like my own personal story about how I got involved with this was a couple of converging things. One, I had a startup where I wanted to write a mobile app and I had this sort of thesis about user interfaces that I wanted to play around with and toy around with a bit. But in the process of building it out, it became more and more apparent to me that this was an existential thing for Python because a lot of the places where Python has historically had traction and historically being useful, either disappearing or becoming less and less relevant. In, and, and the things that are emerging, new platforms like uh, iPads and, uh, and, and phones and tablets and, and that sort of thing. And Python doesn't have a story there yet. From the education perspective, the, and you, you're absolutely right, you can absolutely teach people how to write for loops and print things to the screen and write, do, evaluate Fibonacci and all that kind of thing. But that's not going to get a student excited about the prospect. I've, you know, I presume it is still true with, with middle school students today, but I, even when I was growing up, if you got into programming, it's because you wanted to write games. As you, you play games, you want, to, you want to write the games too. And that's what is getting people excited. So unless you can offer a path to that, it's, it, why, why am I going to bother to learn to program? Like this, you're showing me this thing where I can print characters on the screen, but that's not what a computer like well I want to I want to write Fortnite I want to write this big game 
And okay, writing Fortnite is probably you know a, a bit advanced for even your um, advanced placement extreme students. But if I cast my mind back to like when I was getting into programming in the early '80s, I learned like my first computer was a Commodore 64, and I learned to program with this series of books from a publishing house called Usborne. There was it's a British company, and it was a whole series of books that came with titles, write your own computer space games. And the cover would have and fighters and zapping lasers everywhere and everything. And every page was like a full page, double a double page spread with some scenario about destroying the asteroids that are coming to destroy the universe or coming to destroy Earth or whatever. And they would give you a program listing and it would be a, a 50, 60 line programming list, program listing that you would type in the code line by line and then you'd play and you'd have a game. Now, the game was guess the numbers. The game was something really silly that you could do that was really simple. But the visualization and the story they wove around the outside of that was enough to capture your interest. Now, this is also in like early 80s, so the technology actually wasn't up to doing a whole lot anyway. But cast the thing forward 30 years, one, Usborne has actually now open sourced all of those books. You can get those books and get the original listings and search through them, through them as PDFs. And I've got a little side project where I'm trying to resurrect those for my own, uh, my own sake of memories uh, and turn them into Python apps that you can run. But more broadly, that kind of thing but for the modern era is the piece that's missing. Like you need to be able to say, yeah, you're, you are going to sit down in this class and yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be difficult. But at the end of this term, you're going to have an app on your phone, running on your phone, and you're going to be able to push buttons and it may not be, it's not going to be Fortnite, but it will be a game of some kind or some form of data gathering thing that will respond to use the geolocation in your phone to work out where you are in the school or something like that. You can give them that idea, you can give them that kernel and they can build that thing themselves and have it on their device, you know, that phone that they are attached to 24-7 and then take it home and show their grandparents and show their mum and dad and and build that excitement through real experiences with the technology that they are using on a day-to-day basis and transform this phone from being this thing that just I, I spend all my life looking at social media to being a device that I can control, a device that I can make do what I want it to do, which is what the promise of computers has always been. Python is really well positioned as a language to do that kind of thing because it is a good language for teaching. It is it doesn't have all the stray punctuation and everything. It has a good pedigree as a teaching language. The piece that's missing is being able to do that on a phone, being able to do that on a tablet. And so part of what Beware is trying to do is to provide the tools to the app that will run on the phone and the tools to make it easy to get from I'm sitting at my laptop, I need it to be on my phone to get that to that stuff running so that, so that you can then build on that over time and potentially build lessons and classes around writing the game that is going to get someone excited for that next, and to then take it further and further, learn another language or do whatever else they want to do. It's interesting to me too that the, the components of that story, the pieces that you're talking about, the context that was given to the program, the ability to take that game and go show it to someone else. Those are all the things that don't necessarily relate to it being a game. We see that with the CircuitPython and MicroPython implementations, right? What students really seem to get excited about, and at least in my experience, and I think Kelly, you 
have seen this also is the ability to say, I made this thing that I'm excited about because it's tangible, it's physical, I can see it, I can interact with it, whether that's hardware or whatever. And most importantly, I can go show it to someone. I can go take it and say, grandma, look at this thing that I made. And she can go, oh, that's so amazing. Look, you're such a coder. And, and she can see it and understand it. Whereas sometimes that's hard to do when you're doing everything in a Jupyter notebook or you're doing it on a terminal. The person you're showing it to has none of that shared context. Whereas with CircuitPython, they can see that you made this gizmo widget thing that moves around and it does stuff and it has sensors and everything they can get that and understand it and it makes that much more accessible and real i think for the student yeah mm. and the funny thing is and this is a, a, a fun fact that I, I don't think sean knows but when i was in peru i taught a 10th grade class and it was a design technology class and i've dabbled in a lot of coding and the class was uh to design an app it was an eight-week unit on here we're going to design an app and i would list out the ways that you can design an app on your phone here was a PowerPoint that you could load in a browser on your phone that would look like an app and simulate an app, but it was running on a browser. And we're in Peru where the Wi-Fi is really garbage. I was going to say a bad word, but we can't. This is like a middle <laughs> school thing. And I had Xcode as well. And I told him, listen, I'll pay for the $99 developer fee for you guys because we were in a wealthy school and you guys can do Xcode. And I was in there playing around with Xcode trying to do the template version because I guess I, if I remember correctly, and this is about eight years ago, where you could do the template version and it would also view on your phone a little bit, if, mm -hmm. I guess if you opened it. So we had a lot of kids doing that. And then when I saw Beware, I was like, oh my God, Xcode, that was the year that I faked knowing what I was doing. <laughs> I would, but that ability, even when we were doing the PowerPoint template on the browser, that ability, the kids were so excited to show people, here's my app. And it was like, here's a map of the school. Here's where I order food. Or here's just my little silly pictures that I've drawn. And you're going to go through this app. I think that really hits home for a lot of our kids. It's a great opportunity to talk about that digital citizenship where they're not just these consumers, these suckers of TikTok and Instagram, and they're just not sucking in this information from their phone. They're actually making the stuff on their phone and their devices. And that's one of the reasons why I'm looking at this going, I'm going to do this one. This is my, you know, die hard. I'm going to get this thing going because I think that's a great opportunity for the kids to see. I couldn't agree more. And that, the sort of the extension of that is once you have got that, I know the basic tools I can build the app that has the map and the data entry and whatnot when that percolates and it becomes just the set of things that i know i can this is not something i can do with my phone it's an it's a new set of tools you then start looking at the world as which problems can i solve with those tools and there are so many like we, there's a like computing entrepreneur people will start talk about the long tail where there is yeah there there is this set of apps that is installed by everybody everybody has microsoft word on their on their computer but there is this long tail of apps that are used by exactly five people but those five people it will transform their lives and if you can be the person that makes that app that makes those five people's lives better i i have had the, the i've done that a couple of times where someone says oh god it's just so annoying that i've got to do this and you realize i could make that problem go away in half an hour just da -da -da -da, here you go um 
I had a startup a couple of years ago and like it's, it all basically started with, we had this grand idea for an app that we were going to build and we got in front of an, an actual plumber who we were trying to sell this thing to and he said, no interest in that whatsoever. You can make that pile of paper go away. I'll give you as much money as you want. And what it basically came down to is they were being mailed PDFs like hundreds of PDFs a day. And for con weird contractual reasons, they needed to open the open the PDF, print the PDF, and then they have a physical copy of everything they received. And there was a, a girl in the front office whose job for three hours a day was open email, print PDF, open email, print PDF, open email, print PDF. And I, we basically were able to replace that job with push one button, a 300 page print job comes out the other side, and she could get on and start doing other things that needed to be done in the business. It was like half a day's work for me to put that script together. It completely changed the way the business operated. And it gave this particular uh, woman chance to extend herself in the business. And like a couple of years later, she was running payroll and doing all this other stuff because she now had the time in her day to do things to improve the business. But unless you look at the computer and you look at the tools you've got as tools that you can use to solve problems. It's not just a cons like a, it's not just a TV I can push. It is a hammer. It is it's a saw. It's a set of tools I can use to build things. Until you make that mental transition, it is just a TV you can push. And that's the thing. That's the mental transition. I think and I love these conversations that we have on our podcast, and I, I like going back and rewriting down these ideas, but that's a skill that we we kind of skirt around in our classroom, at least I do, but not specifically teach. As a, as a teacher, you need to specifically teach to them hmm. that, yes, it is a tool, and you can make things easier. Sean always tells me, you know, you can automate that. I'm like, I know, but command C is so much easier for me and I don't have to think about it. I know we could use Python, but that's going to take me a day and a half and I'll be done with this in 45 minutes. <laughs> but I don't think I teach that well to the kids. Literally, this is a tool that A, could save someone's life, do wonders for somebody, improve somebody's something around the world. And we've got to take that as teachers and teach them the digital citizenship behind programming, why it's so beneficial for the rest of the world. So it's a huge task. My coffee morning at light. <laughs> so yeah, well, and I, I think that's where we also think about our larger purpose at teaching computer science at this age specifically, right? So we are looking at this not in terms of creating a whole set of software developers in the future or people who go into a software engineering career path. What we're looking to do is create doctors who look at processes and systems and problems and say, oh, I bet we could use code to solve that, right? Now they may go hire someone to do it, but at least having that mindset that says, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have yeah. to be this manual or this arduous or whatever. I can make this person's life better or I can solve this problem or whatever. Those are the things we want them to start thinking about now. And it is something that they have to practice and learn I think, to be able to really develop that over time. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Can I make a switch real quick? Sure. Because it's, it's been one of these things I've been wanting to ask all week. But why terminal? Why do we have to use terminal? <laughs> if I'm going to bring this <laughs> to the kids, I was telling Sean, he's like, it's really simple once you know how to use it. And I'm like, but I can go into the finder window hold on, and hold make on. I have to, all I have to clarify. I did not say it's really simple when you know how to use it. I said in college where oh, I had to learn it, I was dying for six months yes. trying to figure it out. And, and then if we had I to learn it, this way, then so do you, damn it. But 
I could go. I had to go into the Finder window and find all those files and delete them that I installed because I had, like I said, five or six Beware folders, a couple of Hello World folders. And for me trying to go in and remember CD, LS, make directory, I was like, ah, why terminal? <laughs> yeah, that is a very good question. And there's actually a book you might want to hunt down. It might even be available as an online at this point by uh, Neil Stevenson called In the Beginning Was the Command Line. And it is essentially a almost an answer to that question. It's, it's a, not a big book, but it's, it's a long essay, a really long essay, talking about how we got to this place. Like, what is a command line? Why does it exist? And how does it compare to the macOS, the Windows, the, you know, why are these systems like the way they are? What problems were they trying to solve? And there's, I won't spoil the essay, but there is, part of the reason that it is done that way is because of heritage, because it, it is, that was the way it was done in Unix systems in the 1970s. And, for all of the advancements in technology, we are really still using exactly the same tools we were using in the 1970s. They're just some of them I've got prettier front ends on now. That said, there is no reason we can't put a prettier front end on them. And interestingly, this is actually where one of the, the, the two convergent, like the thesis that I originally had when I was going into Beware, was what I wanted to do was have a rich graphical debugger for Python. So when I was learning to program, or like getting serious about learning to program, I learnt on a series of tools by a company called Borland, and they were famous for having a really good compiler and a really good debugging environment. And uh, it was still terminal. There was no graphic user interface. It was all 80 by 25. But inside that terminal window, it was a GUI. There were windows and scroll bars and things you would identify as being a graphical user interface. It was just being rendered in text. And it was you know, really easy to see this is the line of code that you're working in because it's highlighted in red as you work down the line, as you work down the line of code. And that was great. And then I sort of advanced a little bit further and you end up writing in C, you end up writing even in Python, you're using, you try to debug in Python, you end up with PDB or GDB, the GNU debugger or the Python debugger. And they're terminal tools. Like you see one line of context at a time, you type a command and it shows you the next line of context and it's very powerful but not very visual, not very easy to comprehend what's going on. And I had this thesis that I have a very expensive laptop here with a 4K screen. Why the hell can't you show me the entire code file that I'm working on while I'm debugging it? And I've got Word and I've got Xcode and I've got all these tools that show me I can do this. So why can't I do that with Python? But there is power in what, like the whole Unix philosophy is about building tools that do one thing and do one thing well. And okay, you, you're at the stage where you know there's LS and there's MV and there's CP and there's all these little two-letter two commands that you've got to know. The real power of Unix is that each of those commands, you can pipe one into the next and you can show me all the files, then sort them, then find all the names that are unique, and then give me a count of how many lines there are. And rather than have a pull down that says how many, how many files are there in this directory, you compose together these little pieces until you answer the question you want to solve or the question that you've, you've actually got. Part of what I was trying to do with Beware is say that philosophy of build little tools that do one thing really well and make them plug together well and then the infinite diversity that comes from plugging those pieces together is a useful concept, but that doesn't mean that they have to be 
text-based tools. You can put a graphical user interface on the front of that to control how all the pipes are moving and how all the pieces are interacting together. And so that was the reason Beware originally happened, or one of the reasons Beware originally happened, was that I wanted to do that, but I couldn't find an easy-to-use graphical toolkit that would just work out of the box where you could just say pip install my debugger and it would work. Now, that was about six or seven years ago and I've got just a little bit distracted along the way, <laughs> but I do want to get back to that point um, of being able to like actually build graphical tools. And one of the one of the items on my wish list with Beware is actually to build a graphical front end for the process of doing the tutorial so that you can say, you know, start up not a whole IDE, but just a launch pad so that you can say create and it gives you up a form where you fill in the details you've got to fill in on the form. You say go and it gives you a location you can click on to say now build it, now run it. Now, and that's not a complicated piece of programming to do. It's not a complex idea but you can wrap it up as a nice little GUI that you can give to a student and say, mm -hmm. click on that and then press that button, answer these three questions and, hey, look, you're running an app. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to learn the convoluted two-letter commands to get things going. It may be beneficial for them to learn them at some point in the future if they want to really go forward, but they don't have to learn, I mean, effectively, yet another programming language, which is what you're getting at the terminal for all intents and purposes just so that they can get into the other programming language that you're forcing, forcing them to learn to write. So, yeah, that's... It's funny, the whole time, like, I keep thinking of Nick Tolervey and his mm. new um, editor, and I keep visualizing this whole thing that you were saying in Beware, how I saw it running in there. And, and even though I've been coding now almost three years, every time I go to Visual Studio Code and I try to do a tutorial or I even tried PyCharm, I always go back to either Colab Notebook or Moo to run code. Because it's such a user-friendly beginner and I don't have to worry in that folder and wherever that is and, and find it. And so as you're talking, I, keep, I kept saying, oh yeah, that would be cool. Here's my web address where I want. Here's my email, here's my person as you're running the Beware. Yeah, I'm for that. I'm waiting for that. Yep. Um, <laughs> I will have all my sixth and seventh graders building apps. Do you, you bring me a pretty little package? <laughs> We're on it. <laughs> that's a promise. Yeah, no, that's and yeah, Nick Tullamy is I've had is a good friend. I, I chat to him semi regularly just about what we're working on and where we can go with it and whatnot. And yeah, he's the the first time I spoke to him about Mew and the pitch that he had about this idea of here is an editor. You write some code in the editor and you ship the app to your device or wherever it runs and you see that going, you go, yay, this isn't a great. But then you go and you peel the thing back and you say, hey, this editor you're using, it's written in Python. And you can edit the editor and make the editor do more things. That is like, from a programmer's perspective, it's, that's, that's exactly what you want to blow kids' minds, that you can make this editor have a save as command where it didn't previously have one using the same language that you were using to ship to this other device because it's all just code and you can all just tra transform it. And that's, that's one of those sort of transformative experiences that I can see being really powerful uh, as a teaching tool to really break that, that mold we were talking about earlier about, about that this is a tool and the tool is designed to be modified, but the, the tool is itself a tool that can be used and edited with the tool and yeah. So is, is sorry, Sean, I'm so sorry. I got really excited this morning. No, go, go. So is, is Toga, is Toga Python or is that another language? What is, or a library or what? 
Okay, so Beware itself, there's a whole bunch of things under the Beware umbrella. Beware, Beware is the gov governing project of a bunch of little things, all of which work well together. Uh, so Toga is the graphics toolkit. So it's the part that says, I want to put a window on the screen, on the window, I want a button, and when I press the button, I want a dialog box to pop up or so, whatever it so is. So sorry, that's like the TK Enter version. Yes, yeah, okay. it is effectively TK Enter, TK Enter, but maintained, looking like a modern app and also working on mobile. Okay. So like, originally I started with TK Enter because it was just there in Python and it was a convenient thing to have. Uh, TK Enter doesn't have a web browser. Okay. And that's, there's only so far you can go when you can't display web content these days. You've got to be able to do it. And I, I hunted around to work out how hard would it be to add a web browser to TK Inter, and the answer is a lot harder than you think it would be. So it was easier to build my own toolkit than it was to try and get a web browser into. And then as an added bonus, TK Inter doesn't work on mobile. So I, this was an opportunity to say, okay, let's get it on working on iOS and Android as well. Yeah, so, so Toga and TK Inter are in that similar sort of space. Mix of HTML, CSS kind of... Idea yeah, or? yeah. Well, so the the CSS and HTML is really just for. It's a useful way of describing how things fit together. You build. It's a way of describing. It is easy to explain to someone how this HTML page that I'm looking at, like here is a rendered page, and here is some HTML, and you can say there are boxes, and all the little boxes fit inside boxes. That's conceptually an easy model to explain. So let's steal that. And if someone's going to, if we're going to teach someone how to do HTML, because these days if you're you know, teaching, teaching kids, teaching anyone how to program, they're going to need to learn how to do HTML at some point because it's just an unavoidable skill. And that means they're going to learn about CSS at some point. So let's try and reuse those skills as much as possible and just use this idea that, yeah, okay, so on a web page, you're putting a H1, which is your heading, and underneath that you're putting a P, which is a paragraph, and then you're making the style to be font, whatever, and color, whatever. Take those, it's not called H1 anymore, it's called a label, and it's not called a paragraph anymore, it's called a text box. And, but the, the ideas are laid out exactly the same. And so there's a transferability of skills or knowledge between those various pieces. And so, yeah, that's the... Toga is a 2000, well, 15 and at this point, uh, version of let's build a graphical toolkit that is... Pythonic, it, it fits naturally into Python. A lot of the problems with the, the, a lot of the toolkits that are available in Python, Python wrappers around C plus or Python wrappers around some of the language. And I know C plus, and I can see where the C plus is leaking out. You are, the way that they refer to things, the way that they build things, the way that pieces interact together are not the Python way of doing things. So this was an opportunity to start from scratch, build a Python graphical user interface toolkit that has all the lessons that we've learned through 30 odd years of building things on the web and, and what have you there. So that, that's Toga. The other big piece that you'll come across is Briefcase. And Briefcase is really solving the problem of, of you know, okay, I've written this app, it's got a window, how do I give it to someone else? Uh, which is historically a problem that Python has been really bad at. You can, like the, Python is used, it is, you, people are using it to give, to other, give code to other people and whatnot, but the I, I my experience of every other app in the world is not pip install. It's go to an app store. It's download a zip file or DMG from from a, a website somewhere, and you double click on it, and an icon appears, and I drag it into my applications folder, and that's how I start it. How do I do that with Python? And historically, we haven't had an answer, and that's what Briefcase is basically trying to do: is to say, okay, I have written my game. I have written my walk around the school app. How do I give that to someone else? How do I wrap that up 
so that I can just say, here is the DMG for visit my school as an app. Give that to them and it will just work. And that person doesn't need to care that it's written in Python because you just you don't care that Word is written in C Sharp. You don't have to care that this app is written in whatever language it's in. It just runs. And that becomes increasingly important with things like mobile because in mobile, you can't install a Python interpreter on your phone because that's not how phones work. Everything on an app is on a phone is sandboxed. So you've got to have a way of packaging up everything into an app that you can put on your phone. So when you do briefcase and you package it up, you put it up into, and I'm thinking through just the tutorial of Beware, it goes up mm -hmm. where into Python anywhere and then you run, or where does it go? Like how do you get your briefcase package out to your phone? Out to your so, okay, so in the case of <laughs> what? So, okay, it depends what platform you're on and what platform you're targeting. So if you're on, say, say MacOS, for example, and you're, and you're building a Mac app, you briefcase create, creates the, the, the stub. You go and you put your application code in there. You say briefcase build, it compiles it. Briefcase run, and you can see the app running. You say briefcase package, and it turns it into a DMG file. So it turns it into a disk image, which is, so the, the build process turns it into a .app. The DMG puts that app into a disk image, and that disk image is like the way that you would normally see an app being distributed if you put it onto a, a download site or something like that. Uh, we haven't gone through the process of actually doing this because there's a whole bunch of code signing and notarization stuff that you have to do. But at least in principle, you could take that .app file and upload it into the Mac OS App Store. And then anyone else just goes to the App Store and downloads the app and, it, and off it goes. And that's where Xcode comes in. Or so for Mac OS, yeah, for Mac OS, you don't actually need Xcode at all. So Mac OS okay. is, is just a, a collection of like folders laid out in a particular way. You do need it for the code signing, but that's a different thing. But when you get to the phone, everything on your phone, like the reason there is an app store and you can't just install, download an app onto your phone is because everything is secured and locked down and tied to developer accounts and whatnot. And for that, you need to have Xcode. And to get the phone, get the code running on your phone, there is a little tiny little piece of Objective-C that needs to run that says, start the Python interpreter. And briefcase, when you say briefcase create iOS, you create your iOS app, it creates that stub, populates the stub, because it's just, it's a template basically. It says, this is the name of the app, go over there to run it. It generates that stub, it generates that template, it generates the Xcode project around the outside of it that can be, that knows how to package everything together. It downloads a pre-compiled version of Python that will run on your phone, or just the Python libraries that will run on your phone. And it compiles it into the uh, IPA bundle that can then be installed on your phone. And because the Xcode has the developer link to your phone, it then knows how to use Xcode to ship this app to the phone so that it can then run. And then when you get finally to publishing it, you go in through Xcode, you say, no, I, I wanna uh, package this for distribution, sign it for distribution, send it to the App Store, and then you wait for Apple to do their thing and put it in the, uh, in the App Store for distribution. So if we use like a, a real world example of this, so if I'm not mistaken, the Mew editor does use briefcase to package uh, on MacOS, you said, they're, they're, yeah. they're uh, only on MacOS at the moment, but they're, we've, we're talking to them. So we're, we're trying to do what we can. So in theory with this, what we could do is we have briefcase working for macOS. We can ship macOS versions of Mew using that. I'm sure there are modifications that are necessary, but in theory, you'd be able to say, okay, now take the same code base, package it and build it for iOS 
and ship it, and now it's running on my iPad so that yes. I can have it on and, my tablet. Yeah, and that is actually is already possible. So there, there actually you don't need to make you don't need to make any changes to the app because Toga, or if you're building it with Toga anyway, Toga is already cross-platform and there is a set of back-end, like when I say I want a button on macOS, it's an NS button using Objective-C into the next mm -hmm. step libraries or the Cocoa libraries. And on iOS, it's UI button using the app kit libraries that the iOS provides. But as an end user, you just say, I want a Toga.button. And when someone presses my Toga.button, I want it to say, hello world. And that gets connected up. So if you've written your app in Toga, you can then briefcase package it for macOS, briefcase package it for iOS, for Android, for Windows, and it spits out as an MSI file that can be installed. For Linux, it spits out an app image that will just run as long as you've got a, a relatively modern version of Linux. And yeah, the goal is you write this code once and then package it for the, the platform you want it to run on. And what you get is the installer or bundle or app or whatever the that platform's concept of a distributable thing is yeah because I, I was sitting there going oh my god and then we have the 10 kids that have windows <laughs> i'm like there's got to be the mode button on beware are you working in os are you working? <laughs> i'm yeah, just sitting there going uh, okay i might learn this for apple or whatever but <laughs> but i also yeah, like no, the idea though in the education environment the fact that we can teach them a very similar tutorial and then say, okay, now Mac users package it for Mac, Windows users package it for Windows, and now you can both run your code and it just works. And if you want to, yeah. you, can you cross compile? So Windows users now make something for the Mac users and send it over to <laughs> so, them. Yeah, that, so you can definitely write the app that way. So I could write the app and then share the code with you. And then you, I've written it on Windows. I could give my, you my code and then your code would then run on, if you're running MacOS, you could then go build package it for MacOS. Unfortunately, because the tools are also platform dependent, you can't build a Windows package on macOS, at least not easily, and we haven't done the legwork to make that possible. Interestingly, macOS you can, but it's only because of an accident. Like a macOS app is actually just a directory that's in a, in a known format. So you can, you don't even need to have tools to do that. You can just make directories, and as long as you've got the right directory structure, macOS will think it is an app fun fact about the internals of how macOS apps work. So that is the only platform for which that is true. On every other platform, like you've got to have Android Studio to, in order to compile an Android app. You have to have Xcode in order to compile for an for iOS, just because that is the only way you're getting those tools. Uh, so that is, that's part of it. Packaging it for someone else is a problem. But the app itself, Beware apps are cross-platform. If you build the app and it runs says here, asterisk next to this, if you build it and it runs on macOS, the same app will run on Windows, the same app will run on Linux. And with the modifications, that, like the understanding that you don't have multiple windows on a phone, as long as you're not using that capability, the sort of subset of APIs that work on mobile will work the same on iOS and Android. Now, I did put a little asterisk on that. The asterisk is beware, like the Toga is version 0.3. That is the level, like it's not, production ready throw this in front of your fourth graders and they're going to be able to build a mobile phone app yet we're still a little bit away from that being completely true but we want to get there and it is mature enough that i would feel reasonably confident giving it to talented middle up upper middle grade uh, middle school kind of kind of students i think they could probably work through the tutorial and like they would get their fahrenheit to celsius converter or whatever coming out the other end well, we'll see. I'm we'll working see, on it. Yeah. I, had, I had, because 
We tell the kids we, we do a lot of code challenges with Pie Bites for the kids, uh-huh. and they're working on the newbies. And I always tell them you have to read the newbie bite three times. First time, okay, you read it. If you can get the code, super, move on. You can't get it. Second time, you read it. You can't do it. Third time, read it out loud. So as I was hacking through Beware this week, I'm in the some in my lunchtime or whatever planning period. Shh, don't tell anyone. And this morning, I was like, okay, screw this. I'm going to do my third time, read it out loud. So it is something where newbies have to stop and reread because you skim. You see that little box where, oh, just type. Yeah. <laughs> so it is. No, that. It's, and it's not just newbies. I mean, this is the thing that keeps hitting me again and again. If you are sitting there and looking at this bug and it makes no sense and it just keeps crashing and I don't understand it. No, read what the message actually says. Read, read the actual error message it's actually giving you because it is telling you that you've typed this variable name wrong and you're just misreading it every time you look at the error message or whatever. So this is not just a newbie problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, And I saw a great t-shirt this week that I think we might have to get for, for Kelly. It's the, the old explain it to a rubber duck exercise. There's a, a t-shirt that one of our fellow teachers on the on Twitter made that is back of the t-shirt has a giant yellow duck on it. And it says, I've got your back. And behind it is all of the programming. <laughs> just, and I think it really does it really does make a difference no matter how complex the subject is that you're trying to learn or the tutorial that you're trying to follow. The simple act of reading it out loud or trying to explain it to someone else hmm. really makes a big difference. And I'm very blessed to have a very patient wife who lets, listens to all my explanations and smiles and nods and says, yeah, that sounds really challenging. I hope you figure it out. <laughs> That's a lot of things that we have in common with his wife. And I'm like, yeah, uh-huh, sure. I listen mm-hmm. too. <laughs> so where do teachers get started? So we've talked a lot about the tutorial, right? And we've talked a mm-hmm. lot about different aspects of this. But if someone wanted to start learning this or wanted to start teaching it, should they start with the tutorial? Are there things that they need to you know, know before they get started with that? What's your recommendation for how we can start using this in an education context? Yeah, so the, the first one I'd put on that is, I don't wanna mislead anyone. This is still very early stage software. There are a lot of missing pieces. There are a lot of you know, sharp edges. Be prepared to put on some very sturdy gloves and sometimes you will hit a problem and the problem isn't you. The problem is that the code is actually broken, particularly if you downloaded early this week and it wasn't working on Linux. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that is the first preface I want to put on that. But beyond that, part of the reason or part of the, the problem with it being so early stage is like the tutorial is probably the best piece of documentation that we have at present. We desperately want to get more documentation. We do want to write more documentation. It's just time and resources and where do we put the time into writing up more documentation for something that's incomplete or do we make it complete first and then write the documentation and it's a perpetual thing. We, I have put a lot of work into the tutorial just to try and make it as bulletproof as possible. So if anyone, if you do come across it, you do hit problems or misunderstandings or confusions or whatever, please let us know because that is, that is one that I do want to uh, really nail down. But yeah, that probably is the place to start. If, if you look at the tutorial, work through the t- tutorial, see what is there, and then take a poke around the what pieces of documentation we do have for Toga for what else you might be able to do. Um, definitely interested in speaking to anybody who is using this in an education context, though, because this is one of the areas that I see that Beware has this potential. It is unlikely that someone is going to build the next TikTok using Toga and Briefcase. 
just because when you are like cross-platform tools, this is a, the, whenever you put in an abstraction, you lose a little bit of fidelity. And there is an abstraction in place here that's working across multiple platforms and across mobile and on desktop. So you are losing enough fidelity that I'm, at least for the short term, I, I, I wouldn't expect people to be turning out commercial apps, like wide, like wide audience commercial apps in Python anytime soon. However, scale that back and scale back your expectations and just write apps that have buttons and inputs and the basic stuff that you need to have, that's all very plausible. And one of the big audiences for writing that is in education. So you don't need it to be all singing, all dancing, animations and all the rest of it. You just need to be able to show the kids that they can put a button on a phone that they can press, which will make a fart noise when they press the button. Um, So if I can put a wish list besides the pretty little button thing that you're going to make eventually, the video for me, still trying to process the visual idea of I make it on my computer and poof, it's on my phone. I see Uh like this tutorial video graphic thing for kids sixth graders here it is here you're coding and i don't know if you have any friends like that who can make it but that's where i think for me as a new teacher of coding is the hardest thing to find is some sort of little bit of informational video that puts the image in the kids mind oh, before visualizing they, the context of this, this is, is what's what going to happen this is the magic of, okay. Yeah. So I always think that I search all the time for some good videos and I wish I had the time to make my own videos or even the, I think Paul Craven has done that with his book on Python Arcade and he's visualized his book to an extent. And that's what I keep thinking is one of the things that kills the newbies is we can't see it. I don't know how this magic happens. It's like a leap of faith when I'm typing in terminal that something's happening or when I'm coding, something's happening. Uh-huh. But once somebody gives me a picture of here, yeah. I keep thinking, we're going to take the thing from here and put it over there. And like, think Jurassic Park. That, yeah. Think yeah. Jurassic Park. When he talks about the DNA, that one part where the little guy's like, here's our DNA. And we wrapped hmm. it into a, <laughs> that's what I need. <laughs> the sixth graders, seventh graders, eighth graders need. <laughs> so find somebody out there in yeah, the world yeah. who can do that. <laughs> well, and the related part to this is that if anybody out there does, Beware is a volunteer from primarily volunteer project. We did get some very helpful funding from the PSF to get our Android support up and running again just recently but by and large it's volunteers working on volunteer time you might think that the most useful skills are programmers but more often than not the useful skills are the ones that we can't like the things that programmers can't do it's the documentation it's the art it's the graphic design so if there is someone out there who is a budding artist budding animator budding cartoonist whatever and would like a little bit of a project to play around with to do that kind of visualization we'd love to have a chat so come Yay. and chat. We can, we've got projects. We can give you things to do. We just need to know someone out there wants to play around in this space. Very cool. Excellent. So I guess the, the short version is contributors are always welcomed, no matter what they're contributing or how any help is helpful. Absolutely. And I, I would hold it up to camera right now, uh, although I think this is a visual podcast, but uh, an audio podcast. But um, one of the artifacts of the Beware project is that we have these challenge coins, which unfortunately, because I'm packing my office to move, I haven't <laughs> got it on my desk and I normally would. They're little, uh, little uh, one and a half inch challenge coins, which we give out to at, at sprints for anyone who, who gets involved, who contributes to the project. And we've given out a couple of hundred of those at this, this point. Get in the show notes. I saw them. It's a, mm. a great picture. So cool. Excellent. Well, 
you, Russell, we know that it's getting uh, later on your side um, and still early on our side. But we really want to thank you for, for joining and talking to us a little bit about Beware. It's something that has sparked some ideas for me in terms of how we can work with our students to learn more about things that are interesting to them. And I really do think that there's a nice fit here. Walking home after school and showing your parents, hey, I made this Celsius to Fahrenheit converter is a pretty cool experience for any budding programmer. And to be able to do that on their phone, I think would be really exciting. So yeah. we're really thrilled about the potential here and we'll start playing with it more in our classes and be in touch with what's working and what maybe needs a little bit of help. But we do wanna thank you for joining us and, and chatting with us about this today. It's been really enlightening and a lot of fun to, to talk with you. Yeah, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And yeah, any feedback you've got, particularly if, you've, if it's coming from the trenches of, of being thrown in front of real live students who have found all the live wires that we've accidentally <laughs> left in place, anything, you, you, any sort of feedback or, or input would be gratefully received. I have a sixth grader in mind who came in and said, I already know a lot of Python. I'm like, perfect. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, you want to bother me and tell me you already know this stuff? I got you. Beware. You try it. You know, that same student is going to tell you in about a week and a half. I don't understand why you have so many problems with using the command line, Miss Paredes. Like, it's really yeah, easy. Right? I know. I know. I'm setting myself up for failure, yep. but hey, it's okay. Yep. I can handle it. If you'd like to continue the conversation with us, you can always chat with us on Twitter at Teaching Python. Kelly is at Kelly Pared on Twitter. I'm at SM Tiber on Twitter. I'm also on Adafruit IO, like sharing data out to everyone. So I will put the link to that in the show notes as well. You can send us uh, your feedback and comments on our form at teachingpython.fm on the web. And again, one last thing, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. We don't thank them enough. The work that you do, the contributions you make, to ensure that this podcast can keep happening every week is really, really meaningful to us and we appreciate it. Some of the things that we've been able to do as a result of that is we've been able to have blog weeks. So really trying to get more content out there regularly and your Patreon support is helping make that happen. So thank you very much for that. Thank you to our guest, Russell Keith McGee from Beware. You can find more information about the Beware project at beware.org. We will talk to you next week. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly signing off. Mm-hmm.